when I first started preaching, I was pretty young, uh, junior high, and I get those first couple of sermons underneath my belt where you kind of learn how to communicate and, and go through some of the some of the mistakes you had. And so then the youth pastor scheduled me for a real service. The very first sermon I ever preached was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and he was out of town. So that was just a, hey, yeah, wow, it's a little much. Okay, so the the first service was. The first service was on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. He, just, he was just out of town, but he actually scheduled me for a strategic service where teenagers were going to show up. And so it was kind of the big deal. And so as I prepared, I talked mom and dad into giving me the day off of school. I skipped school to get spiritually prepared for the sermon. And so, I mean, I, I'm taking this thing really seriously. And I'm, I remember I was in my living room and I was praying and seeking God and and really asking for his presence. And I'd forgotten that my older brother, who was in college at the time, and he was pretty disengaged with my life, um, pretty disengaged with my spiritual life and everything about me. And I'm in the den, kind of pacing and praying, and he just walks in the door because his class was over. And I'm the, I mean, I'm, I'm right now imagining a look on his face, like, number one, why aren't you at school on this Wednesday afternoon or mid-morning? Number two, why are you pacing the living room praying, and he asked me a very pointed question with like, why was I there? And so that was one of those awkward moments, you know, very awkward moment. And I said, well, I'm preaching tonight. And, and he said, well, I'm out of here. And it kind of quenched the spirit in my life there, pacing and preaching. But that particular night, I say, it's God's glory. Man, it was an incredible night. It was an incredible move of God. I mean, I felt I had humbled myself. My brother had humbled me further. And the, the, the Lord just moved. I mean, it was, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's one of the, the most powerful services I've been a part of even these years later. So I was scheduled a second time. And this time, expectations got bigger. People were expecting me to bring it. I mean, they were expecting the sermon to be good. And now I had some confidence because I had preached three or four sermons and God had moved and I am the man and this is what I'm going to do. And so that sermon came and the second sermon was okay. Okay, it wasn't like nothing horrible happened, but it certainly didn't measure up to those original expectations at all. And I remember just, just feeling so disappointed that I wasn't able to reproduce the same experience. And I think that one of the reasons that happened is because I just got a little overconfident. I mean, some of this is human nature. In sports, they call it the sophomore jinx, where a freshman or a rookie will come and surprise the whole league. And then everyone expects them to to run a certain way or to pass a certain way or a singer comes and and just arrives out of nowhere and sings and surprises everyone. And then in the future, the expectations are raised. Now, we're gonna see in this passage today that Peter kind of had this same kind of experience. In a a really short cluster of passage here, uh, we're gonna see two very different experiences that Peter had. So let's read together starting in, in Mark Chapter 8, verse 27, and we'll read the whole passage and we're going to break it down. You know, and we're going to see that Peter started out inspired from heaven. 
But then he ended up partnering with Satan. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, we'll talk about that phrase later. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him not to tell no one about him. Now, a little bit later, we'll read Matthew 16, which expands on this scripture. And we find out that Jesus was really happy with this answer. He was really pleased with the answer that Peter gave. But here comes the second part of the story. In my illustration, I'm going to call it Sermon 2. Sermon 1, Peter did really good. The Sermon 2, he got a little overconfident. 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Pretty confident guy to rebuke Jesus, right? But turning and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here's the first word I want to give you to help break it down. I'm going to give you four, four different words. And I know we don't have you version and we don't have, um, we don't have our review. So these are words you might want to type in your phone or you, or you might want to write down or I can give them to you later. But they're going to be pretty easy to remember because there are, they're all four R words. The first word is this, it's a revelation. Revelation. Let's talk a little bit about this first part of the scripture. And let's start, let's go back to verse 27, Mark 8, 27. And it says this way. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, there's that phrase, on the way. This is really interesting to me because Caesarea Philippi were a group of villages about quite a bit of distance from the epicenter of Jesus' ministry, about 25 miles from where he typically ministered. So this was like Jesus taking his guys Say, let's go to Gatlinburg for the weekend. Let's, let's get away for a little while. Let, let's retreat together. And what often happens is, I love that phrase, and on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, one of the benefits of traveling, I think traveling is great, because whenever we travel, uh, we change our pace in life. And, and hopefully we have better conversation when we travel. I know that technology is kind of pushing back against that. But hopefully when we travel with someone, great conversations happen. And, and things happen that normally don't take place. Some of you heard Brent Batson preach on Sunday. And Brent worked with me when I was in junior high. He wasn't too much older than me, just six or seven years older than me. But he worked with all of us guys, and we had something called SWAT, which was spiritual warfare and training. We were part of the SWAT team. And every other Saturday, we'd play sports, and then our mom and dads would drop us off at his discipleship group, and then he would take us home. And Brent was very strategic, because if you were among the last two young men who were dropped off, that wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with the route home. It had everything to do with 
you being on Brent's radar. And he was going to nail you and ask you some questions about your life spiritually. You see, when you travel with people, you, you have unique and great conversations. And going back to verse 27, Jesus used this as an opportunity as he often did. We'll put that back up. He, he often used questions to spur on new theology. He, he used questions to trigger a new thought or bring a new thought. So here he went, and he went to this place, and, and, and parenthetically here, you can know that this was a place where he was a little bit safer because there weren't Sadducees, there weren't Pharisees. Also, it wasn't under the rule of Herodias. It was under the rule of Philip. And so because of that, it was this place of safety. And he asked the question, who do people say that I am? In verse 28, their response lets them know that there was a lot of confusion about Jesus, as there is today. I want to tell you that Jesus is, is very, very confusing definition to most of the world. Why? Because everyone's trying to define Jesus according to their own preference. Everyone's trying to define Jesus according to their own opinion. And and basically define Jesus by how he applies best to his life. So if you need need this loving Jesus who doesn't care about your lifestyle, he's just this loving and great guy. And if you need Jesus to beat people over the head with a Bible, he can be this judgmental person who's harsh and you can define Jesus any way you want to but this scripture reminds us it's not about what others say it's about what you say so the the disciples they say in verse 28 and they told him well John the Baptist is a popular opinion some say Elijah others one of the prophets and Jesus turns this back to the personal decision and we'll go to verse 29 and he asked them but who do you say that I am and Peter answered you are the Christ. So that's a very important word. You, you are the Christ. This word literally means anointed one, our Messiah. I mean, there's no doubt what Peter said here. He didn't say you're just another prophet that has reemerged. Or you're not another prophet that is coming on the scene now. No, he says you're the anointed one. They knew clearly what that meant. You're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. Now, Mark doesn't give us the full story. I love the book of Mark. We've been going through it verse by verse through these years off and on. So we're on chapter eight now. But one of the reasons I love Mark, and I think it's a good first read for people. And a lot of people say, read the book of John when you first get saved. I prefer the book of Mark. It's real fast paced. A lot of miracles, a lot of things happening. But because of that, some of the details, Mark doesn't share all the details that others in the gospel Now, Matthew 16 tells this exact same story, but there is more to the story because Jesus tells Peter some great news, and you can read it with me in in Matthew 16, starting with verse 17. This is the same story that Matthew expanded on, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is where the Pope theology started. That's erroneous and wrong. Uh, Now they would say Pope Francis, who, as I told you last week, I'm excited about what he's gonna bring to the wider body of Christ. But Pope Francis is supposed to be descended from Peter. Well, 
This, this is a, a wrong interpretation of this. The scripture is saying simply on the personal confession of someone's faith, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church on lives that are changed. So your name is, is Peter, which is a, means a small rock like a pebble. Your, your name is Petros, Peter, a small rock. But upon this rock, which is Petra, we got some Petra fans out there. Okay, you just dated yourself, all you people in your early 40s. Okay, you are a little rock, Peter, but I'm going to build my church on the Petra, the big rock, and the gates of hell is not going to prevail. Now, that's, here's what I want you to get from this part of the scripture is this, is that Peter nailed it, didn't he? I mean, he was, I mean, this, this guy nailed it. Life was never going to be the same for Peter because he was at the top at the top of the food chain when it came to people following Jesus. And he was it. He was on top. And Matthew 16 makes that more clearly. Now, there's sometimes that you have a moment that just changes life. And I want you to think about that, some moments that you've had that just changed life forever. This is what that moment was for Peter. I mean, Peter, things were never the same after this moment. Now, for me, one of my moments was the day I went to the mailbox and I opened my SAT scores, because in Texas, that was the preferred test, not the ACT, which is now nationally preferred, but the SAT was a big deal in Texas, and I opened, I was a pretty good student, and I opened my SAT score, and I looked at it. I'm just going to tell you that until my dying day, none of you will ever know what that score is, because it was much lower than I ever wanted it to be. That's one of the reasons that I know there's not a big threat of this, but I'll never run for president because, you know, when they begin to analyze these guys' SAT scores, there's no way I would get a vote. And so I knew that day, when I saw my SAT score, I knew that a certain, a certain list of colleges I was considering was now no longer on my list, and I had to go to Tier B. And that test score changed everything. It just kind of, at that moment, changed everything. There's been other moments like that, too. Now, my first church that I worked in, there was this, this young lady in the church who could flat out sing. I mean, she could bring it down. And I found out she's just a couple years older than me. And I'm thinking, I don't really have a chance for her to go out with me. But the word came. She would go out on a date with Pastor Aaron, 21-year-old Pastor Aaron. And when I found out that news, game on, all right? Game on. That one decision changed my life. I remember when I got the call that the Hope Center, which was the name of this church previously, that the board wanted to meet with me. And I just had a feeling, this changes everything. Everything changes right here. That, that's how it was for Peter. This revelation changed everything. It seemed to change everything. And when things go good for you, it's really easy to get overconfident. When things go well for you, it's really easy to think, wow, because of this one thing happened to me, it's all up and to the right from this point on. Recently, I was at a, a conference with, with a variety of pastors of different ages, and the church we were hosted at was a young church that, that was growing, and it just, had, it just had a good feel to it, had a good energy to it. And the pastor the young pastor in his 30s was sitting on the front row. And the older pastor was there bringing the scripture, bringing the word. The older pastor 
had a very nationally known and established ministry. And I remember, this just happened a couple months ago. He told him, he said, Jeremy, he said, I'm so happy that the favor of God is on this church. Then he said something that I immediately wrote down because I'll never forget this, but I believe it's true. He said, God's favor is great, but God's favor isn't always easy. Think about that. God's favor is great. God's favor is not always easy. Because with God's favor comes responsibility, and with God's favor comes challenge. And the dream moment, the, the, the idea phase, when it's all just a dream, when it's all just a concept, when it's all just something that doesn't require sacrifice and doesn't require risk, it's in that moment that the dream is easy. But sometimes God gives you favor and revelation and he gives you a dream. And then it gets tough after that. It gets tough after that. And that doesn't mean that it was a bad idea. That doesn't mean that God's not in it. It just means that after the revelation, there's often a challenge. And in this case, for our person, our purpose, we're going to say this, there's resistance. After the revelation, there's resistance. And in the book of Mark, verse 31 is, is a transition point. Because up to verse 31, there was this expectation that Christ could, this great rabbi, perhaps would lead a national revolt, would lead a political uprising, uh, that Christ would bring the hopes of political Israel to the forefront because that was the greatest concern of the people that day. But verse 31 transitions because starting in verse 31, from that point forward in the book of Mark, Jesus begins to warn his disciples about persecution, about death. He begins to warn his disciples about challenging times. And yes, the revelation was great. I mean, the revelation was great. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. But as soon as the revelation came, here comes the resistance. Verse 31 says it this way. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's a hard word to even read, isn't it? Must suffer many things. Here's another tough word. And be rejected. Rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. And in verse 32, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why? Because Peter was a man. And Peter, Peter had just had the revelation. When no one else was able to speak forth and say that he is the Christ, he is the anointed one, he's the Messiah. Peter was the first one. God used his aggressiveness and God used his outspoken nature and God, God commended him. We found that out in Matthew 16. God said, listen, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. This is what God has done. I mean, the revelation was strong. So now Peter thought he had the authority to rebuke God's plan. See, God's plan wasn't for political revolt. It was for suffering and for persecution. And how many times, listen, can we sometimes put demands on God that we really don't have any place to put on him? I mean, we are so childish. 
somehow we've got this mindset that God has to do what we say. And I just think we need more humility than that. I think sometimes that can breed in us spiritual overconfidence. Or can I say spiritual pride? Because I know I have a lot of pride in my life. Listen, I do. I deal with pride all the time. Pride in, in ministry, pride in my family, whatever the, whatever the case is. But everything I have belongs to God. And sometimes when we've had a great revelation, we begin to insist things upon God. And we can be just immature like Peter and come up to God and say, and rebuke God. Can you imagine that? Rebuking God and telling God that his plan for salvation really, really was wrong. That's basically what, Jesus, what Peter was saying there. And look at verse 32 again. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And so now we go to verse 33, because I'm going to use the same word again as our third work, our third word. We have the revelation, we have the resistance. Now we have the rebuke, which is really the second rebuke. Because Peter rebuked the Lord, but the Lord turned it back on Peter really, really fast in this rebuke. In verse 33 of Mark chapter 8, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let's, let's see how far we've fallen now from the first scriptures that we read, verse 27, basically, now all the way to verse 33. Couple that with, with, with Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was saying, Peter, man, you're incredible. This is an incredible revelation. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. And now, in just a short scope of time, in the passage you can read, it was like my first sermon that was so humble and anointed. Then I went to my second sermon, overconfident and prideful and trying to reproduce it. Peter started out humble before the Lord and speaking a revelation that only came from God. Then he was in a misplaced position trying to rebuke God and, and to see the power of the scripture again. Go back to verse 33. And turning and seeing disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now remember on a Sunday morning recently, we talked about what the word Satan meant. It means the accuser. He was saying, Peter, get behind me, you who are accusing me against God's will. Wow. Do you not see the incredible potential that we have? I, I can, well, let's check, check this out. This is so true. I can be under God's anointing tonight. And I hope you're enjoying the sermon. I think it's going pretty good. What do you think? Okay. And be like, this is a good sermon, all right? And then afterwards, you can encourage me. And I like it when you encourage me because pastors need that and say, hey, great sermon, Pastor Aaron, great job, great job. I can maybe go on Facebook and see some people said, great sermon tonight at the Church of Indian Lake. And, and I can be in the anointing right now. But three hours from now, I can step right out of the anointing because of spiritual overconfidence or spiritual pride. Peter did it. I mean, that is a sobering scripture to know that, you know, we're not just, we're not just positionally 
perpetually always right with the Lord. We can be right with the Lord in one moment. And then our hearts can drift because of pride, because of disobedience, whatever it is. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not one of these that believes you lose your salvation. I believe Jesus paid the price for that. That's gonna open up a bunch of emails tomorrow. But I'm not the one, let's just put it this way. I don't believe in eternal insecurity, all right? Where we're always wondering if we're saved or not. But I do believe this, that you can either walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. And Peter was in the spirit at the beginning of this passage. And then he was in the flesh at the end of this passage. The revelation, and then the resistance, then Jesus rebuked him. And that was the end of the passage. I mean, we're going verse by verse through Mark chapter 8, and it just kind of ends right there. So I thought, that's not the best ending, is it? I could say, all right, the Lord bless you and keep you. I love you, and Jesus loves you. See you later. But let's look at the whole counsel of the scripture, because the story of Peter is incredible. And when Deborah preached a couple of weeks ago, she brought aspects of Peter's story out that was so beautiful. So I want us to look at a different aspect of Peter's story. And here's, a, here's the kind of God we serve. Here's the fourth R word I'm gonna give you tonight. It says restoration, restoration. And Peter had a lot of restoration. Those who uh, are like Peter who talk a lot and they talk loudly, we need lots of restoration in our lives. And there's some beautiful stories of the restoration of Jesus in the gospels. But I want us to spin over into the book of Acts. And I want us to go to Acts chapter two, which is a, which is a great, great passage. And we're gonna start in verse 14. And at this time, the baptism of the Holy Spirit had come upon the, all the apostles. And they were filled with God's Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, it says this, but Peter... Standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he said, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And now from verse 15, all the way through verse 39, you can go back later and read this incredible sermon where Peter quotes the Old Testament and he calls out the hard hardness of the people who were hearing him. And he uses scripture and persuasion and the anointing to speak God's word. The same guy who Jesus had called Satan. The same guy who had the pride and had fallen after the revelation. And now we go to verse 40 to see the end of it. And with many other words, this is Acts 2, 40. He, being Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And it's 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, that's the beautiful part of this story. The revelation came. Resistance came. And Peter, Peter didn't respond well to resistance. The Lord had to rebuke him and said one of the harshest statements that I can remember in the scripture. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, accuser. But many things happened to culminate in Acts chapter two when Peter, after the Holy Spirit was given to the church, stood up and with his words, preached the word and 3,000 souls, 3,000 people 
were added to the church that day. That's the type of God that we serve. That's the type of God. So this is a warning today. This is a warning to us to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. And I want to tell you, every single one of you deal with spiritual overconfidence. Every one of you deal with spiritual pride. Because I do. We have to keep humbling ourselves before the Lord because he will move through a humble people. We love the scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. That just, it's a beautiful, beautiful words that are strung along, but we kind of sometimes go over the humble part fast. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And I want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, to humble yourself before the Lord because you know what happens when you humble yourself before the Lord? A lot more Jesus comes out in your life because he was a humble servant and he was a humble one. So this is a warning for some of you who may be spiritually overconfident. You're putting trust in your abilities. You're putting trust in your ability to reproduce what you've done before and the Lord would want you to remain humble before him. But I know not all of us are in that situation because a lot of us are in a situation where we've met the resistance and we've fallen short. And you've felt the rebuke of the Lord. You've felt the rebuke of the Lord. I wanna tell you that the rebuke of the Lord is a good thing. You know, we've been conditioned in our culture to think that discipline is a bad thing, but the scripture is very clear. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Some of you, the Lord has, has not let you get away with much. You may have thought, how did I get caught when this other person has never got caught doing the same thing over and over? Maybe it's because God loves you. Because he loves you, he's not gonna let you get away with things other people can get away with. The Lord's discipline is good. It's becoming, it's helpful. The Lord's discipline builds us. The Lord's discipline makes us greater. And so I want you to know this, is that you're not to stay in the place of rebuke. The rebuke of the Lord is only for a moment, okay? It's only, the rebuke of the Lord comes just for a short time, but there's something better on the other end. His compassion, his mercy, his mercy continues over and over and over and over again. And then there's the restoration part, the restoration part. I just wanna tell you this part. Allow God to bring his restoration to you. Some of us are trying to create our restoration and position ourselves for our restoration. Some of us are trying to manipulate our, our restoration and the things that have been taken away from your life because of sin, and the things that have been taken away from your life because of bad choices, things that have been taken away from your life because of mistakes you made. It's so much sweeter and it's so much better when God brings it back in his timing. So wait upon the Lord. Don't try to make that thing happen. Don't try to push it through. Don't try to recreate the situation. Instead, stay close to the Father. Stay close to his presence. The only thing you have to be concerned with is being close to the Father and being close to him. Let's pray about that. What I've said the last three to four minutes. 
It didn't come from my notes. It didn't come even from thoughts I had earlier today. It just came from my spirit. I really believe the Lord was speaking to that. No, I covered several different subjects, but there's something that burned in your heart. There was something special to you. Um, you know, that, that voice inside of you said, wow, that, that seems like that's for me. Hey, that's not, that's not any power that I have. That's the power of God's Holy Spirit speaking to you tonight. I want you to know that God's Holy Spirit speaking to you tonight. He is taking the scripture in Mark chapter 8. He's making it revelation knowledge to you. He's, he's making it life to you. So I want you to receive that right now. Don't doubt. Don't say, well, that's just a coincidence. No. Would you receive by faith that God was speaking to you about that particular situation? Why? Because he loves you. He wants to.